Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. Very happy to have him. So was with us this week. Brother Mike ministered last week. Brother Michael will be up this week, and we're looking forward to what the Lord has laid on his heart. Michael, when you are done, if you won't mind closing your time in a word of prayer, then we're actually allowed to get up and talk to one another. But <laughs> well, it's good to be with you. Um, Hebrews chapter 10. just want to read a few verses here. Uh, this is a subject that I've really enjoyed myself personally this year. I'm not going to take you through it because we don't have the time. I'm going to try to make my message a, a brief. Uh, and knowing that today is Christmas, I've decided to uh, take these thoughts and ideas and tie them more into the Christmas spirit, to the birth and the death, and even the mission that the Lord Jesus left for us. Uh, so that will be my focus. Uh, this study that I've enjoyed is um, a study on how to interpret Scripture. How do we apply Scripture? Um, I'm sure you've heard the old adage, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Well, that is good, but it's a simplified form. Um, many people will read the Bible and will misunderstand it and live in an incorrect way for many years or the rest of their life. And it's important that if we are to apply Scripture, we should go to the source of Scripture itself, and that's the Lord Jesus. And when we study Him, we see how He applied it. Oftentimes, I was raised with this, that we are, to read, we are to study the Bible and read it literally. The problem with that is that the Pharisees read it literally, and when Jesus arrived, they did not recognize him. Jesus interpreted Scripture in a much different way. He interpreted Scripture by looking at its shadows and, point, and, and using those shadows to point to its reality. And once we understand that, I think that the Bible becomes a game changer in our understanding, how we study it, how we apply it in our own life. So this morning, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read uh, one section of scripture that kind of highlights this truth. If I was taking you through the deep part of the subject, I would take you to the words of the Lord Jesus and show you over and over again in the gospels of how he does this and how he proves that this is the way to apply scripture. But I'm going to use the Hebrew writer's words because he does the same thing in a more simplified format. And this morning, my focus will be, so even if the children that are here on the birth of the Lord Jesus, the death of the Lord Jesus, and the mission the Lord Jesus left behind. And for each of these, we have a shadow pointing to a reality. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1. This is the ESV. It says, For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it could never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and in sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me, in the scroll of the book. And the rest of the chapter highlights more of this truth, but we'll, we'll end there. Now, uh, I think it was mentioned last week, it may or may not have been mentioned, my sister and my brother-in-law were to be here this morning, uh, Catherine and Seth. Uh, but something happened to them yesterday. They went to Newark uh, uh, Airport to fly down here, and when they arrived, they found out that their plane had been canceled. And the reason why it had been canceled was due to weather, except all the other flights coming into Orlando were just fine out of the airport. It was only theirs. So they found themselves in a position where they didn't know what to do. 
they were told they could go on standby. Problem was they got excited until they found out they were 44 and 45 on the standby list. So that became a problem. And so my brother-in-law, Seth, decided that, you know, what we should do is we should drive. And so he worked out to drive. The problem was they already checked all their bags. So ironically, their bags flew overnight, but they drove. And we haven't seen them. They arrived at 3.30 this morning. And though they had great aspirations to be here, we didn't see them this morning. Uh, and so we left. But I'm certain when I see them later today and we have our Christmas dinner, I'm certain if I ask them on their journey here, did they see any signposts pointing them to Florida? And I'm sure the answer would be yes. Today with GPS, we don't think of signposts like we used to. But I mean, back in the day, when you saw a signpost, it was exciting. I know some of you came to Canada this summer. Uh, I don't know, in your big bus, if you ever looked out and were bored enough to look outside long enough to see a signpost that would tell you that you're these many kilometers, or in your case, miles, to Quebec City or to Florida. These are things, signposts, that we recognize. They're not the reality, but they provide us with some hope, right? I mean, when I was a kid, I used to get excited. I saw 60 in kilometers. That's getting really close. In miles, you're still an hour away. But you look at those numbers, and though they don't give you the full reality of the substance of what you're looking for, the signpost or the shadow provides you with some sense of understanding of where you're going, of hopefully what you're going to do, and it gives you the hope that you're on the right track, that you're going there. This section here reminds us of how the entire Bible works together. The reason why this week I could have shellfish and not be worried that God was upset with me is because of this great truth. These were signposts that were pointing to the reality. And the reality is always found in the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to apply scripture the right way? Everything points to Christ. If your great message at the end points to you or to something other than Christ, you have missed the picture of scripture. Okay? Everything always points to him. All reality is found in him. The reason why I don't go back and look at the shadows for the purpose of living in those shadows is because once the reality arrives, once I enter into Florida, for example, I don't go back and say, I remember that green sign that said 45 miles. What a beautiful sign it was. I'm going to cherish the sign and I'm going, that's what people do today. That's what Christians do today. Our focus is on the reality. And the reality is found in him. Now, I want to take this concept, which the Lord Jesus made abundantly clear. It's the way to understand scripture. And I want to apply it even in his life, his birth, his death, and his mission. Because even in these great realities, there was actually a signpost or a shadow that was pointing even to something greater. We're going to begin with his birth. You know, the world, it's funny that even the world will recognize his birth less so his death, right? That's the one we get a little bit uncomfortable with, but his birth, because there is some beauty. Yes, there's the simple side of it, that he was born in a lowly place and all that kind of stuff, but I think the world actually looks highly at that. I'll tell you why, because most of us can relate. We can relate to the beauty of, of this scene and people coming to visit and worship him. But when you look at his, the, the Savior's birth, here's the interesting thing. Jesus' birth pointed immediately to the reality of his death. I'm going to show you the, the reasons why. Number one, the shepherds. There's a lot of things we could say about the shepherds. You know, lowly place and unlikely people to be told of the birth of the king. And you focus on all those things. But let's just get down to the reality of it. These shepherds from Bethlehem, Euphrata, were responsible for one important thing in the nation. 
They were responsible for raising the lambs that would be slaughtered in Jerusalem. That was their job. It's not ironic, is it? It's not like an oddity that of all the people to be invited to recognize the birth of the Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world were the very shepherds who raised these little lambs without blemish and brought them to Jerusalem so that the priests could inspect them and say, yep, this one is good for sacrifice. You see, the shepherds were there because their occupation was to prepare the lambs for slaughter. Okay? Birth, recognizing the, the full reality of his death. Simeon, eight days old, Jesus comes to Jerusalem with Mary and Joseph, and they, they do the, they perform circumcision. It would have been that day, they probably would have named him publicly. His name is Jesus. And Simeon takes the little baby in his arms, and the highlight of it, I mean, he talks about, this is the glory of Israel, and a light to lighten the Gentiles, and we focus on all those things. But Simeon's predominant message to Mary is about suffering and death. She, she's going to feel it. It's going to be like a sword going right through her heart that her son is going to die in a very, very awful way. Right in his birth, this shadow is pointing forward to the reality of his death. The last one, the Magi. Magi come from the East. You know, this last year, being Canadian, I mean, I mean, the whole world would have recognized it, but being Canadian, the death of the Queen was a huge deal. I mean, even our currency is going to, I think at some point, change. There's going to be a king on it. Right, everything you know for us it was it, it, it's 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 a big deal. But when a when a, when a, when a, when a monarch is born, there's usually a lot of highlight given. But when a monarch dies, it's far more significant. I don't know if you watched or saw any part of the Queen's funeral, but like people were invited to come from all over the world. President of the United States, I believe, was there, but not a big entourage. Same with Canada, not a huge entourage, right? Because there are a lot of important people. It's interesting that when a dignitary is born, or when a royal family is born, there's a celebration, but it's not to the same extent as a death. When somebody dies of great importance, they come from all over the world to pay their homage and respect for that person. The Magi coming from the East, I think, is great significance because they were signifying, I think, even by the gifts that were given, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, these are the gifts given for a funeral, for a burial, that ultimately Jesus' birth the very instruction that we have surrounding the birth. Yes, it is a, a life that came into the world, but it's but it, his purpose for coming into the world was so that he might die. It's an immediate reference, everything tied to it. And how does the little story end? How does the how does the word of God put a bow on the birth of Jesus? Herod tries to kill him and kills all these little children in the process. Do you see how the birth is directing us forward to his death? Okay, so that's the first part. Second. Jesus' death points us forward to life. Ooh, that was an opposite, right? We had a life that results in pointing us to death, and now we have a death that's pointing us to life. This is the, the, the shadows. Even in Jesus' life, he's showing us shadows pointing to an ultimate reality. Now, let's, let's look at some of the examples. Number one, every time Jesus speaks about it, I didn't look at every example, but I'm pretty sure, if not all, most. Like the disciples will get excited about something and they'll talk about something. And then Jesus will bring them down. He'll tether them to reality. And he'll say, I have to die. He'll usually say, I'll be betrayed. I'll die. And then I'll rise again. You notice that he always talks about all three. It's not just his death. Some people can get focused right to the death and then they don't look past it. You know, when I came to Christ, I recognized the importance of Jesus' death for the first time in a new way that I never saw before but I could look past it because now I could have life and he has life. So I have life, right? Sometimes we get stuck at, 
an important point in human history, but we don't realize it's also a shadow to a greater reality. And we as Christians have been called to live out that greater reality. So the Lord Jesus, he'll, he'll reference that. He's in the temple the last time, and he looks at the temple and he says, he says, destroy this temple, referring to himself, and in three days I will raise it again. Again, he is signifying that his death has an ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is resurrection. And he's calling us to be a part of it as well. And to his enemies, when he was on trial, I don't know if you've ever studied this, but I, it's, it's, it's a very fascinating, uh, the Lord Jesus is silent in his trial most of the time, but there is a point where the high priest implores him to tell him if he is the son of God. And he says, I am. He uses the name of God. And then he says, and from now on, you will see the son of man riding in power and glory. And then the high priest does what he's not allowed to do. He rips his clothes and he freaks out, right? Now, let me just take you back to an old Jewish illusion, an old reality. When I was a kid, I, I, I thought, like, yeah, son of God, son of man, which title is, is more precious to, 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 to the character of, of Christ and who he is? And in my mind, son of God, son of God, son of God. But to the Jewish people, son of man is the most cherished uh, a title that could ever be given. Even Adam was called the son of God. But to be called the son of man it go, takes you back to Daniel's prophecy of one like a son of man that, by the way, in, in Daniel's prophecy, it says the son of man, he, he, he approached the ancient of days. Now, now, if, if I were, if I was just speaking to us as a crowd here, if, if I was going to appear to the ancient of days, do you think I would go down to see him? I don't mean this to be like a, like it's a physical spatial thing, but, but even, even Lucifer in, in, in Isaiah, he wanted to be like the most high. No one is crazy enough to think you could be higher to come down, right? So, so the image that Daniel gave of one like a son of man that would enter into the ancient of days, it must be somebody who's going up. That looks like the ascension to me. And when he appears before the Ancient of Days, the Ancient of Days gives him all power and might and authority and a kingdom that will never, ever end. To me, that's all the ascension. And here, the Lord Jesus is bound in front of people who hate him, who should know better, should know who he is, his own family by flesh. And they look at him and they want to cast him out. And he says, from now on, when you see me again, you'll see me as the Son of Man, riding in glory. What is he trying to tell them? He's trying to tell them that next time you see me, you'll see me for who I really am. King of kings and Lord of lords. And this is why the man in the white apparel looks at them and says, when Jesus ascends, he says, and the way you see him go up is the way you see him come back. And the reason why the New Testament often talks about Jesus's return as one, as the son of man riding on the clouds of heaven is because the one that Daniel prophesied would enter the ancient of days is the same one who's going to return in the same glory, honor, and power. And on Christmas Day, I don't think there's a better day to remember that Jesus Christ is coming back again, right? His death directly points us to the life that will never end. Now I want to tie this in and finish it off by talking about Jesus' body, talking about you and I, the mission, uh, those of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. The question was asked, why are we still here? Yeah, I love that question because people get all, first of all, Jesus will come whenever he wants to come. So it's not up to us, right? So we are so self-centered sometimes. We want everything to be us. And, and I've heard Christians in every century. It is good to live. It is good to live in the, in the expecting promise that Jesus could come right now. We should live in that. We're told to live in that. 
But I, every generation seems to have Christians who think they will because for some reason it's them and they're different than everybody else, right? If he doesn't want to come for another thousand years and make it 3,000, perfect 3,000, that's up to him. But I do believe that in less than a second, he can return. I believe both are true, and I'm to live in the tension of those two. So, we as the body of Christ, why are we here on earth? We are here on earth so that we can show the world what it looks like when God's kingdom comes in all its power and glory. Or shouldn't we? For some reason, it seems as though one of the soft spots of Western Christianity today is that we want to be, we're escapists. We just want to run from all trouble and run from all problems. And he promised us there would be trouble. And he promised us we would carry a cross, but we don't seem to want to do any of those things anymore. Right? But we were called to do those things. And we, the church, are left here on earth today to show the world what it's like when Jesus reigns over us. At least that's what we were called to do. Now, I understand, and Paul makes it very clear in his writings, that there is a war not only in the world, because it's the clash of two kingdoms. Isn't there a game, Clash of Titans or something? I don't know. There's, I don't know. There's some game of Clash of Empires or whatever. When you have conflict, it's because there are two different groups trying to get the same material, right? That's how war, that's how war works. And what we've had for the last few thousand years, is an inaugurated kingdom that is breaking through. Because Jesus right now, I believe, that picture of the Son of Man, I believe he has all power, glory, honor, and he sits at the right hand of God. So that kingdom is breaking through, and it breaks through through the lives of believers on planet Earth today. It's starting to break through. And even in my own life, I have two natures now. I have one that's being led by the Spirit of God, and I have one that's being still, it's still at war in my, in my own body. Forget the war that's out there. People are so focused sometimes on the war, a clash of the two kingdoms in the, in the, in the global sense, they're not willing to recognize they got a war going on inside. And it is a war with God's Spirit, working in my life, and and my sinful nature that still wants to be fed, right? And both of them are at work together. So, Christians today, body of Christ, the mission, why we were left here on earth, we were left here on earth so that we could point the world to a new world order, and the Bible calls that the kingdom of God. I know world order sounds scary, but this in this one case, it's a good one. It's the kingdom of God, and it's breaking through. So the first thing, We are a new creation, and we are a new community of people. None of you are from my cultural background, I don't think. Well, maybe Frankie has some connection, some some connection there. But but from, from a genetic standpoint, we have been brought together because of Christ. So we come from all the nations. That's not what makes us, that's not what brings us together. What brings us together is the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. His burial, His resurrection, new life, new family, and we were called to do that. There are many who have experienced bad things in church community. The reason why they experience bad things is because of the old nature that wars even in a church community. It wars with all of us. But we were called for something bigger, something different. We were called to be new creatures in Christ and to be a new community that's different than out there. You know, the problem with with the way churches can function at times is that we become just like the world. And if that's what you want to do, then you're going to fail at the mission. You see, there are a lot of clubs out there. There's sports clubs. There's bocce clubs. Well, bocce, you don't even know about it. I always use bocce as an example. It's an Italian game. It's a long story. My grandfather, I won't go there, but there's different clubs out there, right? 
If you think the church community, or if it's been designed in a way that makes you feel as though this is a club, you got some personal interests, so you get together because you got those interests in mind, and you have, you have missed the purpose of what God called us to be. He called us to be a family. A family that cares for each other. A family that goes out to do good works. That represents who Jesus is. And as a result of it are his hands and his feet in the world today. That's what we have been called to do. So to be a new community. We have been called to have new freedoms and new motivations. Freedoms from sin. You can say no to that. That's funny. Uh, Someone who works with us, he's a major diabetic. But if you bring in front of him a donut, he will always eat it. And he will tell you that anyone who gives him one is trying to kill him. But he won't stop. He'll keep eating them. You see, we as believers have been called to stay away from sin. And yet some people just get, I just want as much as possible. And the more you eat, what happens after? You feel sick. You don't feel good. The Bible teaches us when we are fed by the Spirit of God, though it at times it's like, I, I, I shouldn't take that. Ultimately, it's for our good, and we feel so much better after. This is what we were called to do. And lastly, I'll say about this, is that we were called to live a life, and this is something I think has been missed in Western Christianity for a while, a life that recognizes that in a soon coming day, Jesus is going to make it all right, and he's going to establish a new heaven and a new earth. The final reality for us as believers is not little spirits somewhere up in the sky. And we often talk like this, and we often sing like this, that we're all going to be in heaven forever. Actually, you're not. Big newsflash surprise. You're going to be in a new heaven and a new earth. And God didn't come to redeem my soul. I get, I hear that all the time too. Your soul, your soul, your soul. He came to redeem my body, soul, and spirit because I am going to live as a human being forever and ever. That old teaching was the teaching of the Greeks and the Romans and somehow it is infiltrated Christianity that I'm going to be a little spirit up in the sky somewhere. No, I am not. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth reality. And the truth is this, the word new in the Greek that is used every single time is not brand new like a brand new car, it's a restoration. You ever see those old cars that get restored and they look really cool? They look better than the new cars, right? That's the project of you and I. We're going to be made new. It's not a new Michael De Silva is going to live in the future separate from me. The, the old nature is going to be gone, but something from this has been redeemed and it will be part of the new. And I will be body, soul, and spirit forever. You know why I know that? Because on the third day, Jesus rose again. And yes, my body, it needs a lot of remaking. I got it. The beauty of the Lord Jesus is that he didn't do any sin. And so even the marks of Calvary, I believe, will be there forever. It wasn't just that reality of those few moments. Some think that eventually will be all gone, but I think it will be there forever because there was no need to change his body. He was perfect. But he will bear the marks forever. The marks that men did to the Son of God because of their hatred towards him. So this is the great reality that we live in. Why are we placed on earth today? We are placed on earth like a signpost. Yeah, I got a lot of problems. I'm not perfect in any way. And if anyone in the world looks at me long enough, they're going to see parts of me that are definitely not of Christ. But I am to be that signpost. I'm like the guy who stands at, you know, the 30-mile marker before Florida. Right here, right Follow Jesus. Come this way. I'm not perfect. I'm not its reality. I'm going to be its reality as well. But I'm not its reality yet. But I have been redeemed. And I just want to point you. I want to point you there. That has been. That is our call. Our call is that we too are a shadow of the ultimate reality that is coming when Jesus Christ returns. I'm going to close just with a little story. 
Dr. James uh, Kars was a professor at NYU. He actually passed away um, in the first few months of uh, the pandemic in 2020. He's uh, famous for writing a book on, um, I think, well, maybe several books, but one book called The Infinite Game. And what he did was a comparison between what he called, this is more from a business world or even a, a mindset of humanity, not, not a Christian mindset, but one that I want to apply here, uh, a comparison between the finite world or the finite game, he called it, and the infinite game. Okay, let me just explain it. For, for North Americans, the finite game is something we know very well. Okay, finite game is a game of winners and losers. Now, being in the United States, I can tell you guys love winners and you laugh at losers. Okay, most of the structure of, of, of countries and structures of our society are built on a finite game of winners and losers. Right now, you have college bowls, I think, right? I'm not a real f- big football guy. We just finished the World Cup soccer. Our team was Portugal, made a top eight. Boom, we lost. It's over. But it's, it's a tournament of winners and losers. Even politics today, sadly, has a little bit, or not a little bit, a lot of, we won, you lost. We're going to get you two years from now. We're going to get you four years from now, right? It's a winner-loser mentality. And it is easy for us to take that cultural mindset, that worldview, and rope it into the Christian life. But we were not called to do that. This professor spoke, and he's not a, I don't think he was a believer. He spoke about the infinite game. Let me tell you a little bit about the infinite game. Well, first of all, the word infinite should kind of attract us as believers because we're going to live forever. If you didn't know that, it's just a little surprise. You're going to live forever. Merry Christmas. You're going to live forever as a believer, okay? Well, we're all going to exist forever, but you're going to truly live forever. The finite game is different. The finite game is a game, that's the way he modeled it, that understands that there are no winners and losers. That it is a focus on trying to achieve and also to share in the joy of other people's achievements and to share in other people's sorrows. The man's focus was on self-improvement, but the Bible calls that sanctification. It is about a war that exists in me and that God is working in me and that that, that over time the Spirit of God is, is dominating my thinking and my life and my purposes. And ultimately, the infinite game is a focus on recognizing I'm not going to be around forever. So I serve in a church. Where is the future of this church? What about the young people? What about others? It's thinking about others all the time. And it is a world that it's not about my kingdom. You know, it's Gollum, me, my, everything's mine. It's a different world. It's a world that's about others and caring for the needs of others. And this professor called it the infinite game. We didn't have to wait for Dr. James Cars. The church was supposed to always be about that. When someone else in the in your local church gets a job promotion, are you excited for them? Or are you saying, well, they're going to make more money than me? I can give you many other examples, but that's the point. The infinite game is just as excited about someone else's joys as though it's their own. And is just as sad about the sad things of life, even when it's not theirs directly. That's what it means to live in a true church community. That's what it means to live in the shadow of the ultimate reality of God's kingdom that's going to come. And that's what we were called to do. So I hope that these thoughts this morning, Christmas morning, focus completely on the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who showed us from his word, the shadows, 
that all pointed to him the reality. And even in his birth and his death and in his mission, we see shadows even in them that point us to the greater reality, the soon reality of Jesus' kingdom coming in full force. And when it comes in full force, there will be no more opposition. It'll be all gone. Opposition is coming to an end. But until that day comes, we have been called as the church to live a life that's different than the culture of our world, a life that cares for the needs of others. And we'll build a community together for that great purpose to be the sign marker. Whether it's 30 miles or 60 miles or 120 miles, to be a sign marker. Pointing the world and to remind even each other as believers, this is not the final reality. Oh yes, I'm enjoying the presence of eternal life right now, but the final reality is coming. They say sometimes in commercials, coming to a theater near you, coming to the future. For all of us who are believers is the coming reign. The never-ending reign, the glorious reign of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks for your mercy and kindness to us today. A reminder to us on Christmas Day of the great uh, 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 glory of your Son and the, and the great mercy of, of the purposes of God to bring forth uh, a way of escape, to take a good creation that had been marred by sin and destruction and to come in and to rescue it by taking the very enemy, the weapon of the enemy, death itself, and using the, the weapon against him. We give thanks for this privilege of being together today. We think of the, the word of God and what we've read about these shadows that pointed to Jesus. And we pray that for the rest of the day, and uh, as, a, as a springboard for the year to come, if the Lord be not come, that our focus will be on seeing the true reality and in our own lives by the Spirit of God's moving and, and, and help that we will live to the best of our ability what it's like to be the shadows, the signposts that point the world and point ourselves and our families to the reality of the soon coming eternal reign of our Lord Jesus Christ. We commit this to you now in our Savior's name. Amen.